Welcome to the podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. In 2002, the New England Journal of Medicine published two separate trials of hypothermia for neuroprotection in unconscious patients with spontaneous cardiac output after cardiac arrest. The trials had strikingly similar findings with reduced mortality and neurological injury in survivors. The ICU community reacted swiftly and therapeutic cooling to 33 degrees for 24 hours became a major component of guidelines for the care of these patients. Despite this enthusiasm, many experts raised concerns that the strength of these recommendations was not justified by the level of evidence, and further investigation was required. Nicholas Nielsen is a consultant in intensive care medicine at Helsingborg Hospital and Lund University in Sweden, and is the lead author of the recently released Targeted Temperature Management Trial. He joins me on the podcast, and I began by asking him how therapeutic hypothermia is thought to be of benefit. Yeah, the benefit uh, is, of course, based on uh, uh, what we've seen in the animal experimental uh, studies, showing that uh, even if hypothermia that is protective, if it's introduced before an ischemic event, uh also uh, seemed to be uh, beneficial if it was introduced after the ischemic event in the experimental setting. Uh, and that was then investigated in the trials that were uh, published uh, a bit more than 10 years ago. And uh, that is what we have lived with uh, since then. Um, the, the mechanisms are multifactorial and uh, of course it's a reduced metabolism it's less apoptosis uh, less uh, um, uh, cell uh, damaging cell signaling and uh, other various uh, mechanisms less inflammation uh, so uh, but we wanted to see that the signal that was seen in the animal experimental uh, experiments were uh, also relevant for the uh, for the general cardiac arrest population that we treat today in our intensive care units. Nicholas, you made reference to the two studies that were published in the New England Journal in 2002. What were the, the issues with those trials that uh, led you to, to conclude that we needed further studies to flesh out our understanding? Yeah, um, if you just look at the, the numbers, the, uh, the numbers that we believe that they were a bit too small. We did some something called a trial sequential analysis and realized that, that even if these trials had been perfect, uh, they would anyway introduce quite high risk of a random error. And uh, we, we assessed the, the knowledge gap to be about six to 800 uh, patients before we could say anything uh, more firmly. Uh, but they also had methodological issues. The better one, the uh, the HACA trial uh, was very uh, selective in their inclusion criteria, and uh, they um, they uh, just um, in, included about eight percent of the patients that were admitted to the uh, ER with return of spontaneous circulation. So that was a small number, and the the other one, the Australian one, uh, also has uh, some methodological issues with it. It was a pseudo-randomized trial. They had a one 
interim analysis that was not really scheduled, and then they continued the, the trial after seeing the results. So you could always uh, argue about um, the quality of trials. I think these trials were extremely important for us to realize that the cardiac arrest population was a, a population well worth investing resources in and that we could achieve a good uh, outcome for these patients. Uh, and they've been of in enormous importance uh, for the development of cardiac arrest uh, research the last 10 years. But I think uh, they might not have been the, the end of the story. So that's why we thought it was reasonable to continue uh, with, uh, with yet another trial with its uh, uh, aspects. I mean, uh, our trial is, uh, of course, a different trial from the earlier trials, and it's not a remake of the Bernard and the, uh, and the Hawker trial. So tell me about your trial. What were the things that you set out to, to find out? What were the questions that you were trying to answer, and how did you go about it? Yeah, the, the main uh, issue with both the previous trials or uh, was the issue of fever in the control group. Uh, and um, it's been debated before. Um, Fritz Schertz from the Hawker group, he has been discussing this for a long time, that uh, uh, they met criticism that uh, they did not, uh, uh, they could not say anything about if the effect they showed was an effect of introducing hypothermia or just taking away the fever. And that was the main issue that we wanted to, to answer with the TTN trial. And that's why we pushed the, the upper uh, temperature management group as close as normal temperature as we dared without having the risk of introducing fever in that group during the intervention period. And what were the results of the trial when you compared those two interventions? Uh, we had no uh, difference between the 33 group, which is the standard uh, care uh, according to guidelines today, and the 36 group. Uh, um, there was no difference in uh, either survival or neurological function uh, uh, measured with the cerebral performance category and the modified ranking scale. And uh, there was not a signal. Uh, the point estimates were actually all in a slight uh, direction of benefit to 36, but of course not significant. The, there's been a lot of talk in social media circles, particularly that this is the end of therapeutic hypothermia, but you certainly seem to, in the control arm, very tightly control temperature, um, and that there, there still seems to be a role for very active temperature control, just not at the same temperatures as what we were doing before this trial. How do you see that? Yeah, that's uh, absolutely a very important uh, um, observation. This is not a trial that had no temperature control in the control arm. We, we had very active temperature control. We used uh, temperature management systems, and we tried to be very tight on 36 degrees and avoid fever throughout the intervention period. And, and we also avoided fever up to... 72 hours after the cardiac arrest in both groups. So we had a very active control. Um, and uh, I would not say that this is the end of uh, hypothermia. Maybe we should use the, the word temperature management and 
that for these patients it might not be that important to to uh, to go down very deeply or very quickly or um, and we could possibly avoid a lot of side effects uh, with using a slightly or significantly higher temperature but avoiding fever. Um, my understanding of the control arm that you used suggests that you still had quite an investment in terms of resources in managing those patients. Um, for example, the, the duration of sedation uh, and the length of stay in ICU is very similar to the, the intervention group. Do you think that it's necessary to compare the control arm strategy that you used in this trial with a more conventional um, treatment of fever when it arises type strategy? Yes, I think that is a very important uh, next step to to try to see if uh, first to see if there are any signals in any subgroup uh, in any direction uh, when we look deeper into the material just to get the hypothesis of what to do next. But but I am very aware of what you what you also observed that we invest a lot of uh, resources, long sedation and possibly side effects of uh, prolonged intensive care uh, in this group that we know that many people, uh, many patients probably should have woken up after 8, 10, 12 hours and could have been uh, uh, extubated earlier. So that is an important observation and a very important next step to, to, um, to try to define if we can uh, be less aggressive and less, uh, uh, yeah, give less resources to these uh, patients with the same results, of course. Nicholas, one of the other interesting things about uh, the trial that you did was the, the prognostication issue and the, the tight protocolization of that. Was that difficult to achieve or how did you go about it? Yes, uh, it, uh, it took a long time for us to, to figure out the, the best protocol. Uh, we realised that we needed to have a pragmatic approach. Uh, we could not be too protocolized. Uh, I mean, uh, the best would probably be to push it even a few days further uh, up, but that would uh, increase the, um, the demands of the ICU, uh, the ICUs. Um, and um, so we, we tried to be very strict, but also pragmatic. And that's why we chose the uh, the 72 hours after the intervention period. So we pushed the, the traditional 72 hours after cardiac arrest until 72 hours after the, um, uh, the intervention period was over. But we also have some, uh, let's call them bailout situations. Uh, if it was, uh, uh, if we could find uh, ethical reasons that an earlier uh, Withdrawal would be appropriate. We, of course, allowed that. And uh, we did not demand that you should continue uh, to treat a patient with a very severe multi organ failure. Or, uh, uh, or, um, and then we also had some um, quite hard, uh, um, let's say, um, statements that if the patient developed brain death or had a severe myoclonic status that developed early in the course before 24 hours and where they also had a negative somatosensory evoked potential 
then you should stop the treatment earlier. Nicholas, there have been some concerns raised about the powering of the study in, in social media circles, at least, um, in that uh, some claim that the, the, the study doesn't exclude the possibility of a clinically significant mortality outcome uh, based on the expected mortality of, uh, or mortality reduction of 55% down to 44% as your study was trial, uh, powered to, to trial. Um, how do you see those concerns about the powering? This is, of course, a very interesting uh, issue to discuss. And uh, we based our power calculations on, uh, on previous trials. And uh, the absolute risk reduction in, in the previous trials, they were in the range of 15 to 23%, and a relative risk reduction of 25 to over 50%. Uh, so we thought that uh, it was reasonable to, to aim for a 20% uh, relative risk reduction. Um, and uh, actually, we have probably a little bit more power uh, in the trial because this was the, the earliest uh, phase where we aimed for 850 patients and using uh, landmark mortality with the numbers you stated. But then we changed the primary outcome to a survival outcome and survive until the end of the trial. Then we needed a few more patients, 900 patients, and then we went to 950 to find a difference in uh, survival of one month. Um, so it's probably a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit uh, less uh, relative risk reduction and absolute risk reduction in terms of landmark mortality. But of course, this is an issue, and uh, there might be a, a lesser relative risk reduction or absolute risk reduction that is relevant clinically. But there was no signal. The point estimates went in the direction of 36 for all the outcomes. And um, if you look at it in a Bayesian way, it's actually 10 times more likely that the, the, the results came from the null hypothesis, at least 10 times. Nicholas, proponents of evidence-based medicine would have us believe that uh, based on a trial, we should be implementing the trial strategy if we're going to change our practice. What do you think is now the standard of care for temperature management in uh, post-cardiac arrest patients? Uh, we have in our units and in the units uh, in, the, in the trial uh, changed to 36 degrees uh, using the way we treated the patients in the control arm with sedation, uh, with the tight uh, protocol as, uh, that, that we used. Uh, that, so I think uh, that it's reasonable until we know more to use that as the standard of care. And I, I've heard from many sites throughout the world that that is what they think as well. Now, you mentioned until we have more information, what do you think uh, are the questions that we need to answer now? Um, how firmly do we have a protocol set at this point? Of course, we only have uh, still only have uh, randomized evidence for uh, for uh, the patients with a uh, presumed cardiac cause of arrest and the rest of the cardiac arrest patients are uh, just uh, extrapolated from those results so 
we still need to uh, to figure out how to treat this group that is actually increasing and it's a, it's a large proportion of the of the patients but for the cardiac arrest patients with a presumed cardiac cause and um, obviously uh, the the shockable rhythms are the ones that are most uh, investigated I think that we still need to look both up and also maybe down in temperature and in uh, in uh, in the uh, aggressiveness of our protocols as you mentioned I think it's very reasonable to try to figure out if it's possible to to just avoid fever to wake up the patient a bit earlier maybe a wake-up call or something and uh, on the other hand it might be that we still need to look more into depth into neurological function and see if there are uh, signals that a lower temperature might be uh, beneficial in subgroups uh, and uh, not measuring CPC or a modified ranking scale but instead using a more um, detailed uh, approach. The, that is another issue that um, has been brought up is the survival rate in, in your trial seemed to be much higher than what we would expect in or in, that has been reported in other sort of major um, surveys. And the other issue yeah. that I noticed was that you had relatively few people with severe brain injuries. Um, yeah. Was that a surprise to you? No, it's actually exactly what the number. We have this large registry, the, the hypothermia network, and then with another registry called the, the intensive, uh, the International Cardiac Arrest Registry with almost 4,000 patients. And this is actually exactly the same numbers having the, in the clinical everyday practice registry. Um, the, the problem is that we, in, in the general um, uh, service or observational trials, they always introduce in-hospital cardiac arrests and cardiac arrests of other causes than cardiac, and they have a different... Um, yeah, it's a different patient group and different yeah. outcome. So I think this is actually a quite reasonable uh, event rate with 50% uh, for these patients. I think it reflects uh, many sites throughout the world. Yeah. That, that in itself is a very interesting thing to take out of the trial, isn't it? That, that confirms the findings that you've had from that registry. Yeah. Um, but suggests that the outcome from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, particularly with a shockable rhythm, is actually probably better than many people would expect. Yeah. Do you think that might have been influenced by your selection criteria, or do you think that's a general statement? I think that, as you may have seen in the concert flow chart, the, inclusive, the inclusion criteria were actually very inclusive. We did not exclude that many patients uh, on a medical reason. So I think they reflect day-to-day uh, -day practice. Of course, we have quite a few uh, sites with uh, a referral uh, approach where they, where they receive patients from other hospitals and from, from uh, the best patients may be pooled to those sites. So that might uh, 
give a little bit of an increase in the survival rate, but uh, uh, we also have quite a few sites with a very general uptake and uh, smaller sites, so it's fairly generalizable. Nicholas, congratulations on uh, the release of a fantastic trial that has uh, uh, substantially contributed to our understanding of this area. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules, and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.